This episode of Yap is sponsored by Fiverr. I've been using Fiverr for years. In fact, I got the Yap logo made on there, and if you've seen my cool audiograms with animated cartoons, I get those images from Fiverr too. They have affordable digital marketing services and over 100,000 talented freelancers to choose from. The best part is that it's super affordable. If you're interested to give Fiverr a shot, hit the link in our show notes. You're listening to Yap, Young and Profiting Podcast, a place where you can listen, learn, and profit. I'm your host, Hala Taha, and today we're speaking with Ali Al-Mosawi, the author of multiple books, including an illustrated book of bad arguments, bad choices, and the point of pointless work. Ali also has a corporate career and works in cybersecurity at Apple. Today, we'll be picking Ali's brains on how he manages a successful side hustle and a full-time job. We'll go deep into his insight on bad arguments and the different logical fallacies or errors in reasoning people make when arguing. And we'll get an introduction to computational thinking and how algorithms can help you think smarter. Hey, Ali. Thanks for joining Young and Profiting Podcast. Hi, Hannah. How's it going? Good. I'm so excited to have you on. We have so much to talk about. Likewise. Before we get started, I would just like to introduce yourself to our listeners. You're the author of an illustrated book of bad arguments, which is a book on computational thinking and the point of pointless work. Your books have been read by 3.25 million readers, translated into 20 languages, and have sold over a quarter of a million copies in print. But technically, this is your side hustle. You also work full-time at Apple. Is that correct? That is correct, yeah. My first book came out in 2013. Uh, It was a book on uh, logical thinking and mistakes people make. And then there was another one a few years later on computational thinking. And then uh, the last one was just uh, kind of a part memoir, and it was a shortish book about just the experience, my experience in publishing. But yeah, as you say, it's all been kind of a side passion project. Very cool. Tell us more about your background and your career journey so far. Sure. So I um, got into uh, programming probably in middle school. I uh, I remember a coming across a phone book that someone had done in a language called BASIC, which is no longer around. And it was all, there wasn't much of a UI to it. It was all text-based in a terminal. And I saw that and I realized that, wow, that's something that I can do as well. I don't need to be in a lab. I don't need to have special equipment. I can just do it at home. We had a 286 PC, I believe, at the time. Hmm. I did that for a while and then I quickly moved into a programming languages that allowed me to build user interfaces so that they looked fancier as you know with time and then um, around the same time I was also um, into reading uh, magazines so com- a lot of computer magazines and I submitted one of the applications that I wrote at the time to one of those magazines and it was featured and I was very excited about that and I thought wow you know maybe I can do things that can compete with others in this space and I remember around the same time the internet was kind of taking off at least in my world So I started kind of reading up on how to uh, register a domain name and how does DNS work and how does do web hosts work and all these things that we might take for granted nowadays. But I had to find out how to find out about them initially. And it was a a really nice experience because there weren't many uh, resources available online. There wasn't anyone around me who was doing any of that. So it Mm -hmm. kind of forced me to to kind of really understand those concepts so, so that I could understand how those various moving parts work together to, uh, to make this internet thing work. So I did that for a while and um, Google Ads happened around the same time. So they were uh, offering uh, money to website owners uh, in exchange for uh, ad clicks. 
And I thought, well, I'll, I'll give this a go. I don't know if anyone's going to click on, on ads or not. I, I, would, I would never click on an ad. So who, who's going to click on an ad on a website? But I set that up and um, I don't know, some things, you know, I think their algorithm was much more generous in the, in the older days. So I, I got all, all this revenue all of a sudden. That made me realize that not only is this stuff fun, but also it can be a source of income. So it made me kind of ambivalent about wanting to go to uh, college. And I, I never was in academia, even though I was good at school, I wasn't really in a, into kind of picking a college or you know, thinking mm -hmm. about standardized tests and how to do well on them and all of that. I thought I'll just go to college, get it over with, and then go back to uh, doing this stuff. But I went to college and I realized in my first year that I was studying computer engineering. And, I, and computer engineering is part software, which I knew a lot about, and part hardware, which I didn't know anything about. Mm -hmm. And I realized there and then that, you know, there is a ton of things I don't know anything about. And there's actually value in slowing down and actually reading about this stuff and seeing how it's applicable and how the world works and so on. So that is how I started falling in love with uh, academia and, and school and realizing that there is value in this other world as well. It's I enjoyed the uh, kind of the fast pace of industry, but I also came to appreciate the slower pace of academia, mm -hmm. at least in that experience of mine. Yeah. So, so how did you get into writing? What first motivated you to be a professional writer? It was by accident. I was not. There was no uh, plan for me to turn into a writer, and in fact, I was very careful about not using that term to describe myself because I thought I'm not a writer. The Bad Arguments Project was a website initially. It was the mm -hmm. summer of uh, 2013, I believe, or it might have been 2012, might, uh, 2013, I think. Uh, I, I was just like you. I was doing stuff on the side. Some of it you know, would stick, some of it would not stick. And this just happened to be yet another project that I thought would be interesting. I had some notes from uh, my high school and college days about mistakes people make during arguments. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if I were to um, put this in a kind of a book format and add silly illustrations with animals in them and just post it online and see what happens. I did that and within a few weeks it got picked up by io9 was the first blog and then there were other websites and blogs that picked it up and it just turned into a book by December of that year, so within a few months. Once it did turn into a book, again, I started reading more about the medium and about the industry, and I thought, wow, there is a whole new readership or audience in publishing that I that is very different to the audience that I'm used to uh, with the internet. Uh, so that got me interested in writing, and then my second book on computational thinking is an actual book, I would say, because I started with an idea, then I thought about how can we kind of, with, the, with an audience in mind, how can we put together something that's compelling for that audience and novel at the same time? Mm -hmm. And uh, that's how it happens. So one step at a time. Very cool. Very interesting. So I recently had a guest on the show. His name is Jonas Koffler, episode number 45. He was the author of Hustle alongside Neil Patel. And he suggests that when you work for another company or another person, you're essentially renting your dream and that you can't own and rent your dream at the same time. So like you just mentioned, you achieved a ton of success and publicity with the Book of Bad Arguments. It essentially went viral and became a cult classic among your readers. Help me understand why at that point when you, that book became very successful and you started getting PR and all those things, why you didn't just take the leap into becoming a full-fledged, full-time entrepreneur and author. Yeah, I think um, many people would have done that. And it was an option on the table for me as well. But for me, the um, what I realized also at the time was that I was enjoying doing this stuff because it was a passion project or it was a side thing. 
if it turned into my uh, like my primary focus, I don't know if I would enjoy working on it as much. You know, if I'm a full-time writer and all of a sudden I pitch an idea to my agent or I publish something to the market that doesn't do well, all of a sudden I have to start thinking about what do I do now? I need to kind of make up for this and so on. So it becomes potentially a source of stress. Now, on the flip side, if you are an entrepreneur, that's your fuel, right? That sense of constant stress and that feeling of constant risk is uh, is kind of what propels you to move forward. So it was a calculated risk for me at the time. You know, it wasn't one that I wanted to take back then, but I, I can see myself taking it sometime in the near future, potentially. Hmm. So how do you manage, you know, doing these past passion projects and having a very demanding full-time job at Apple? How do you manage these projects? What I found is that there is always time in the day. You know, I might not have a full day to dedicate to a particular project, but there's always a few minutes here, a few minutes there, an hour here, an hour there, where you can work on this kind of stuff. And for me, I was uh, when I first started my current job, I was commuting, uh, and that was about an hour each way. So that was an opportunity to work on side projects. Nowadays, I don't commute anymore, but I still have about half an hour to 45 minutes every morning before I have to go to the office. So I go to a cafe here in downtown, and I just work on... I have a Google Doc called Ideas, and it, it lists, I think at this point, probably 20 or so ideas. Some of them are still interesting. You know, six months later, some of them I'm thinking, yeah, maybe not so much. But I just, you know, if, if I'm not working on something right now, I just go through that list and just try to flesh out those ideas. And at some point, they'll be at a state where I can actually share them. So I would say just making time in, in one's day for that and being disciplined about it. Totally agree. For me, like I mentioned before we started this interview, I have this side hustle for a podcast and then I have a, a really demanding full-time job. And like you said, it's all about priorities and just scheduling time. So before work, I work on my podcast. After work, I work on my podcast. I don't watch TV. I don't do frivolous things because right. time is precious. And, and if you want to work on your passion projects and you you know, have a full-time job, you've got to make sacrifices. So. Right. Totally agree there. So let's talk about an illustrated book of bad arguments. How did you first get interested in the topic of critical thinking? It was always something that I was interested in. I don't know when it began precisely, but I remember as far back as at least middle school. I don't have much of a recollection before then, at least of myself. But I remember in middle school, at the very least, I had a few friends. I never had many friends, but I had a few friends one of the things we did is we always got together and we talked about things. Usually it was about philosophy, but it could have been about other things. And that was a great opportunity to realize what worked and what didn't work when it came to convincing other people about uh, what you felt passionately about. And because we were all very different ideologically, it was like the perfect place to experiment with that. So we'd go to a cafe typically, and we'd just spend the whole night talking. And it was such a pleasant experience. And I, I would say around that time is when the idea for this book probably began. Hmm. Uh, when I then went to college, of course, college is also an ideal place to do that because you go into this new place where, you know, at school, maybe you knew everyone in your class, but you go to college and all of a sudden you have all these other people who are, you know, who are potential friends and colleagues. And you have all these societies and clubs that you can join. And, and there was a debating society in, in, uh, on campus that I was involved in briefly. But again, just making those acquaintances and friendships and talking about people about different things was, again, a, an opportunity to kind of uh, refine these notes that I had about what worked and what didn't work. And I quickly realized that anything that was emotional 
didn't really work at a fundamental level. If you're giving a speech in front of an audience, it, it, it is tremendously useful to be emotional and to use rhetoric to your uh, advantage. But if you're in a smaller setting with two or three other people or a small circle of friends, you need to, you need to kind of move away from that. And so that a lot of the things that you see in the book, the book is not an exhaustive list of logical fallacies, but the ones that you do see all come from that time in my life. And they, they all kind of summarize the things that I was noticing in myself and the things that I was trying to avoid mm. while I was engaged in these conversations. That's interesting. And so when I was reading about your book, doing research, I noticed that a lot of people would mention when talking about your book, like how it's so important to know about these logical fallacies nowadays and how due to the advent of the internet and social media, this topic is more important than ever. So could you just shed some color into why the topic of critical thinking and knowing how to make valid arguments or at least illogical arguments is an important thing nowadays? Well, for a number of reasons. One, on a personal level, it's important for us, no matter what discipline you're in or what industry you're in, I think we all have this common goal of wanting to do good and wanting to get to some truth, however we define that truth. And so, as I mentioned in the beginning of the book, there's a quote by Feynman where he says something to the effect of, the easiest person to fool is yourself. So critical thinking helps us on a personal level know that the product that we're building is actually the best product or the feature that we have in a new release is actually the best feature, or the way we're kind of asking for resources at work or asking for money from VCs or whatever it might be, is actually backed by evidence. And it's the type of evidence that would appeal to the other person. On a broader scale, it also has implications for our everyday lives. So we have an election coming up very soon. Mm -hmm. From now until then, this is an ideal time for anyone who follows the news or reads social media just to kind of pick up on how people try to convince others of their positions and kind of what mistakes they might make and why they make those mistakes. Sometimes it's made consciously because it has a, a desired effect. So I would say maybe that is the more important one, is the implications of bad thinking on, on society and our everyday lives. And if you are on the other side and you're a presidential candidate, for instance, and you want to convince people that your policies are the better policies or that you are the better person for that role, again, rhetoric only might get you so far. It's also important to kind of make reasonable, evidence-based arguments. And again, that's where critical thinking can help you appeal to the right people. Well, we're definitely going to get into some actionable tips when it comes to critical thinking and go over some of your bad arguments. But first, I want to just explain a bit more about the uniqueness of this book to my listeners. So it looks like a very fancy children's book, in my opinion. It covers a small set of common errors in reasoning, and you visualize them using memorable illustrations. I would say it's the perfect coffee table book, (laughs) and all of your books have this similar look and feel. So why do you make books that are illustrated and look like they could be for children, but are actually for adults. That's a great way of putting it because that's exactly how I would describe the books. It's they are all books that look, I would say the first two at least. The third one is a slightly different category, but the first two are books that look like they're for a younger audience, but they're actually for adults as well. I think I, I like the uh, I like the head fake that that, that involves. So I, I like the fact that someone would pick it up and think that oh well this is this might be good for my kid and then starts reading it and realizes oh well maybe some of this is applicable to me too. So mm-hmm. just on a personal level that uh, that that general trick appeals to me. 
And also on, a, on an aesthetic level, I like illustrations. I think artwork is a great way to convey meaning and to convey ideas. Uh, I just like communicating things not only through prose, but also through illustrations and humorous illustrations as well. Yeah. Some of the, um, at least in the first book, there isn't a lot of humor. So I try to be careful with how much humor I add into my books. But I think with just the right amount of humor and just the right amount of lessons and a combination of prose and, and artwork, you can end up with something that's pretty compelling. Yeah. And I know that 65% of the population are visual learners, so I'm mm. sure that was a great strategy that led to some of that success that you had with that book. That is a good point, yeah. Visual learners are, uh, are a, I didn't know that was the number, but 65% sounds like it might be the case. I remember when I was in college, I used to draw all the time. Like in my assignments, I always used to use analogies. I always used to explain my answers using small graphics. And I liked that because that was how I thought. And I, I like explaining things using those kind of mini graphics. Yeah. And speaking of how people learn, you wrote this book in a very unique sense that you specifically wrote it about bad arguments. You didn't provide tips on writing good arguments at all in the book. It's just all about these bad arguments. Why did you decide to go about it that way? And how does learning bad arguments actually help us construct good arguments? Yeah, like I say, because it didn't start like an um as a book ought to start. I mean, I didn't do much research. I, I didn't think about, you know, how, what would be the best way to frame this book? What if I did it this way? What if I did it that way? There wasn't much of that. So I, I can't say that mm -hmm. I really thought about the opposite approach. And if I had written a book about good arguments, you know, how that might have looked. But what I started with was just this list of notes that I had about things not to do. And I thought, well, that's to your point. You know, I'm not giving tips about how you should be doing things, but at least I'm saying how you shouldn't be doing things. And that's good enough. I mean, not, uh, being able to spot patterns of mistakes around you, it's a good starting point. And then from there, you can start thinking about each one of those uh, ideas. You know, for instance, if it is wrong to generalize without evidence. So I know that's wrong. What does that, what, what are the implications of knowing that for how I talk about things? So the hope was, I think, to, uh, have people explore each of these themes on their own. So have a kind of a catalog of patterns that they should avoid, and then from then kind of explore things as you know, however they wanted to. And I, I mentioned a, a list of books at the end of Bad Arguments and websites as well. So the, the hope was that people would read this book mm -hmm. quickly maybe, and then go to the back and then buy those books or check out those websites and learn about each one of these fallacies. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about the crux of your book, all these logical fallacies, which are an error in reasoning or a false assumption that might sound impressive, but proves absolutely nothing. Many times people use these logical fallacies unintentionally, but in other cases, people use them intentionally during debates or arguments to mislead others into thinking, acting, or behaving in a certain way. Salespeople, politicians, and con artists are the usual suspects when it comes to these logical fallacies. So knowing how to spot a logical fallacy and refute it can be an incredibly useful life tool. There's hundreds of logical fallacies, but your book just lists 19 of them. Would you go over your top three logical fallacies you think my listeners should be aware of? Right. So I would say the ad hominem attacks are a big one. Ad hominem is a Latin word that means attacking the person or attacking the man. And you see that a lot. It's always important to distinguish between the person who is saying whatever is being said and the thing that's being said. So a common tactic that you see in debate or that you see on whatever stage 
is an attack on individuals. You know, so-and-so said this, or so-and-so is this or that, or so-and-so comes from this city or that city or this state or that country. And so that makes you wonder, well, what is the importance of who said it? And shouldn't I be thinking about what is actually being talked about and when, if it's politics, for instance, you know, what are the policies that are causing all this friction and all this anger? So I would say that's a big one, and you see that all the time. And I think the example that I give in the book is something that I saw on a message board, again, back during those uh, high school slash college days. And uh, it was something that I would see in that forum as well, just uh, on message boards, people talking about things as petty as, you know, tabs and uh, spaces in the in the, like in the software uh, world. You know, should you use tabs or should you use spaces? And then people get into these heated arguments and sometimes they lose sight of the fact of what they're talking about and they just kind of get into personal attacks on each other. So that would be a big one. Another one that comes to mind uh, is actually something that I saw on the news a few weeks ago, which is sometimes called the no true Scotsman uh, fallacy. So it's all, it's redefining things on the fly when they don't work for you. So I remember there was an interview, I think, with the president's uh, son where he's asked, who's your favorite Democrat? And he says, Mitt Romney. So I, what, what he was getting at there is that, you know, he's, he's not a true, Mitt Romney is not a true Republican. And then that reminded me of 2016, where uh, the same was being said about Bernie Sanders. He's not a true Democrat. He only canvasses with Democrats at election time. So that sense of redefining what is a true whatever is also a tactic that I see often. And it happens when you don't know what the, the, the bounds of the category that you're talking about are. And so that allows you to kind of change the definition of that category on the fly in, in a way that works, works for you at the, at the time. Let's see, other ones. Um, appeal to ignorance came to mind uh, only because I, I, can, uh, I, can, I know exactly where that one came from. There was a guy, and he, I think he turned into a meme at some point where he says everything is because of aliens. He's got this like uh, messy hair, and you see it on Reddit all the time. So they ask him, you know, what's what what's the cause of this? He says aliens. What's the cause of that? He says aliens. So this is an example of an appeal to ignorance. You know, just because we don't know what the cause of something is, we can't attribute it to something else. So I know there are several concepts and phrases when it comes to arguments that have Latin names like ad hominem, which you just mentioned, and ad populum. Why is that? Were arguments studied extensively in Roman times or something? Young and profiters, they may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. And I love to teach sales on LinkedIn, because when it comes to B2B sales, LinkedIn has got that on lock. LinkedIn is where all the decision makers are hanging out. There are 180 million senior level decision makers on LinkedIn and 10 million C-suite decision makers. These people are on LinkedIn and they're in the mode to buy. They're using LinkedIn for their buying journey to research vendors or sales reps that they might work with, to look up how to solve their problems, to learn from industry thought leaders. They are in the mode to buy, whereas on other platforms, they're in the mode to be entertained. You want to get them in the right mindset. You want to cut through the noise with LinkedIn ads. In fact, 79% of B2B marketers rate LinkedIn as their top channel for paid media. And LinkedIn has the best targeting because they've got all these different inputs. People are putting their resume basically up on there. And so there's so many keywords that they can use to target the right decision makers so they can hear about how you solve their problems. And 
I've got a special gift for all you young and profiters who want to try LinkedIn ads. You can get a hundred dollar credit. LinkedIn was super generous. If you want to make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a hundred dollar credit on your next campaign, go to linkedin.com slash yap, Y-A-P. Again, if you want to claim your credit, go to linkedin.com slash yap. Terms and conditions apply. Well, there are two ways to answer that question. One is to say that, yes, indeed, this is something that goes back thousands of years and it's been around, you know, people have talked about this kind of thing for the longest time. So it's not anything recent by any measure. Now, on the flip side, it's also depressing that this has been around for so long and we still make those same mistakes over and over again. And this is something that I have thought about. I don't remember if I thought about it before writing the book, but I've definitely thought about it since then. What what really is the, kind of the point of talking? I must have been in a kind of depressed state when I thought about, you know, what is the point of all this? But I think the general question is, can we actually make a difference? You know, if, if we if we publish books like this or if we talk about critical thinking and if we come up with projects and, and so on about it, can we actually make a difference? So at my lowest point, I would have said, I don't think so. You know, it's been around for so long. Not much has changed. People continue to kind of use the same things for the same effects. But on the flip side, I realized that, you know, even if you were to make a small dent in the way people think, that's good enough because that can lead to uh, effects, hopefully, that have, like we were saying earlier, implications for the broader community. If I can change how an individual thinks about the world and that individual goes on to become a prime minister or a president, then all of a sudden, you know, I can share the credit of the effect that person will have on his, on all his constituents. So I think it's somewhere in between. You know, we have to realize that, you know, some things can never be eradicated 100%, but you can make small dents here and there to improve things, hopefully, in the long run. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree. So another common form of a fallacious argument is the appeal to irrelevant authority. Could you share some examples of this and why it's ineffective? Correct. So I would say the other form of it is appeal to authority categorically. So that any kind of appeal to authority is suspect and you have to kind of question it. But uh, mm-hmm. I use this, a simpler form of it in the book, which is the appeal to irrelevant authority, again, because I was seeing examples of that. It's, for instance, if some, I think the example I give in the book is of a scientist who is asked about morality. I think I had Einstein in mind for that. So Einstein, I think, had some personal issues. So would you go to Einstein to ask about things that are not science-related? Or would he be able to stand on a stage and talk about those things that are not science-related? So it's any kind of authority figure that is who is talking about something that they may not have enough evidence about or know enough about. I think sometimes we conflate the two. You know, if someone has a memorable name or a recognizable face or name, mm-hmm. we tend to think that no matter what they say, is as good as anything else they might say. And that's not the case. If it's something in their area of expertise, it's one thing. If it's something about something completely different, it's a different thing. So those, those are areas where one has to be careful. But if I pick up a paper, for instance, that has 50 references, or if I go to the doctor and the doctor tells me, well, I've, I think you might have this or you might have that, mm-hmm. I could, if I want, question that. And I could do my own research and I could kind of go back to first principles and I could go to medical school and do all, I could go to the extreme and kind of do everything I have to do to corroborate what the doctor has told me. But I tend to believe the doctor because I I think that she has or he has the right experience and the right knowledge to give me a diagnosis that's that's the correct one. So that's the nuance in that that particular fallacy. Yeah. Yeah. That seems like a really important one to understand so that you don't get like conned or persuaded by a politician or something that 
is basically just using his name or reputation to get ahead. Right. And I think that's the trouble that, uh, you know, if someone's on TV or if someone's influential on Twitter and they post something, you sometimes have a tendency to forget to question, you know, is that thing, does that person know a lot about that thing or does he know less about that thing? So kind of assigning probabilities to what people say based on what we know about them is, I think, important. Hmm. Let's talk about another one. It's called the false dilemma. What is this method of reasoning and where have you seen it used? The uh, false dilemmas, again, I, I, I don't know why this morning it's all politics, but it's, it's what's top <laughs> of mind. But again, you see it in politics a lot. It's splitting the world into two halves and saying this half is bad and so therefore this we're left with this half, which is what I'm all about. It's very effective, I have to say. Again, a lot of these fallacies are about framing. And if you can frame the world or model the world in a way that makes people convinced that, oh, there are only these two options, then you can use that to great effect. So again, you see that in uh, politics a lot, in the way some politicians talk about the world. But you can think of any other scenario where you might see that. I mean, you could see it in the corporate world, for instance. If a manager or a director or a, a CEO wants to make the case for something, they'll say, well, the world is one way, but we can make it this other way. And so therefore, we're going to fund this project or that project. But the reality is that, you know, that framing may not be in accordance with reality. There might be mm. other things in the world that are also options. But we just have, I think we have this tendency sometimes to forget to question uh, you know, the way things are framed and modeled and just take it as read that the way they are framed is in fact how they are in reality. This brings to mind um, like a classical example of a, a cognitive bias by Tversky. He was the first one to, uh, to mention that. So he runs an experiment where he asks two groups of people. He says there's a, a disease that is going to kill 600 people and you have two options. You can either save 400 people for sure, or with a two-thirds probability, you can save 600 people. And then he goes to the second group and he says, you have two options as well. You can let 200 people die, or you can let 600 people die with a one-thirds probability. Now, those options are exactly the same, just the framing is different. And he found that people were more prone to go with the first probability versus the second one, again, just because of how the thing was modeled. So language and the way we talk about the world has a great impact on kind of how people engage with us and kind of what effect we have on them. That's very eye-opening. Yeah. So let's talk about fear. I know fear can be very effective when it comes to arguments. It can be a very strong motivator for us to take action. And you were talking about politics. So do you have an opinion on how Trump used fear effectively? He used it very effectively, and he's not the only one. If you look at Europe, for instance, and some of the parties there, you see that commonality. It's using, again, using fear to um, paint a picture about the future that may or may not exist. So again, there's no talk of nuance or probabilities. It's just talking only about consequences. And I don't know enough about evolutionary biology to know why fear affects us so much, but it does affect us to a great degree. And if someone can convince us that you know, there is a future that is bleak, that is certain, I think those mm -hmm. are the two factors that are used to great effect. It is likely that that person will be able to uh, manipulate us. And that's why politicians do it, because a politician is in the business of getting the most votes. And I sometimes have to remind myself of that, you know, mm -hmm. character, morality, policies, the good of the country, the good of the individual, 
they're one thing, but the uh, kind of the most important thing for a politician, especially for a, someone who's seeking the top job, is to get the most votes. And if you can use something like fear to kind of mobilize all those people, then you're succeeding as a politician, but not maybe as a human being. So that's that's the trouble there. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about the straw man form of a bad argument. To me, this is an especially interesting one and one that we see all the time. Could you give us some real-life examples of this and break it down? Yeah, a straw man is is also a way of kind of a sleight of hand that you might use in the midst of a conversation. So someone makes an argument for something, and then you change that argument or change the way that it was phrased and then attack that caricature of an argument. So it, it could be done maliciously or it could be done by accident, but either way, it confuses the audience because especially in debates where things are happening very quickly, you might not pick up on straw men. This actually brings to mind an effective way of having debates where you ensure that the thing that you're attacking or the thing that you're teasing apart is actually the thing that was said is to repeat it. Is If someone were to mention a topic, is for you to then say, well, what I understood from what you said is such and such. Is that the case? And if you get a, a yes, then you can move on to uh, you know, picking out the things that you disagree with. Uh, that is an effective way of making sure that you don't confuse yourself and you don't confuse your audience. But when it's done maliciously, it's, it's sometimes tough to pick up on because, um, like I said, it, it is a sleight of hand. So, yeah, someone might say, for instance, to give you a concrete example, you know, this is my policy for healthcare for all. And uh, these are all the nuances and these are all the details and this is how we're going to fund it and this is where the money is going to come from and this is how it's going to affect the economy and so on. And then the other person says, you just want to give everyone free stuff. You just want to give everyone free healthcare. We're going to go bankrupt. Taxes are going to go up. So completely missing all the nuance and changing what was said to a great degree. But again, if you're in the audience and you're not careful about what tactics people might use on that stage, you might miss that. And you might think to yourself, well, that is that is a good point. You know, where is this money going to come from? And so on. Yeah. It, it just goes to like the, the red thread in all of this is that you just need to kind of pay attention and think about what people are saying, who's saying it, and if they have the expertise to say what they're saying or the knowledge to say what they're saying, and if what they're saying actually proves anything or is just a way to kind of trigger your emotions. Exactly, yeah. I mean, that's the whole point of the qualifier, critical, right? Otherwise, it's just thinking. I mean, the reason it's critical is because you are examining and re-examining and being skeptical about everything that is said. And if you do it often enough, and if you... Um, Hopefully, if you read the right books and if you listen to the right debates and lectures and uh, and so on, you know, you'll be in a state where you're equipped with um, all this knowledge to be able to do it quickly. Yeah. And uh, I think it's a, it's a critical skill. Definitely. So let's talk about emotion. From my understanding, you know, I've done a lot of podcasts on persuasion and negotiation. And, you know, emotion is, is a big way to convince others. So what would you say is the best way to use emotion in arguments? I would say so long as it's evidence-based, there's no nothing wrong with using emotion. To your point, if you do want to persuade, there is a huge emotional component to a persuasion. It's not only about the data. I could show you all the data there is for making a, a case for something. Let's say I want to pitch a product to you or I want to pitch... Um, whatever other idea I think uh, I'm passionate about. I could show you the numbers, I could show you forecasts, I could show you re reports and so on. 
go through the literature and say why it might work. But again, there's there's that emotional aspect to it that is probably going to tip the, the balance for you. And again, I would say fundamentally, so long as the argument is evidence-based and it's clear what the evidence is, there is nothing wrong with adding emotion to it. An emotion can be using a, a color that I know is going to appeal to you or using language that I know is going to appeal to you as my audience or um, whatever else you know touches us in a rational way is, um, is, is effective. So I was talking about artwork before, for instance, for communicating ideas. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's emotional because I have to think about what artwork to add to my books, whether it's in color or not, whether it's very humorous or somewhat humorous or not humorous. What kind of characters to go for? Will these characters work in all kinds of cultures and all kinds of uh, societies or not? And so on. And also, like in the case of the Bad Arguments book, the type of paper, the background, the font, serif, sans serif, all these have emotional implications. Uh, even the end band, I, mean, I was looking at the book uh, this morning, the end band, the cover, the fact that it's matte, uh, the fact that it's a wrap, there's no dust jacket. All of these are, are decisions that are driven purely by emotion. I mean, there is no rational reason to use one or the other, but I should say it's primarily the emotional component that drives these. But then yeah. when I buttress it with evidence and I say, well, I am going to go for this color or I am going to go for this material maybe for these reasons, and I kind of think through those reasons, I think that's, those make, it, make for a good team. Yeah. And just to add, a tip I've learned in the past when it comes to emotion and arguing is to remember that when people are upset or angry, they really aren't receptive to new information. So you want to take time to validate what the other person says, just saying, you know, you understand how they feel and try to get them comfortable and happy. And then they'll be more likely to then listen to your counter argument and be more receptive to that. That's a great point. Yeah, it disarms them immediately. Mm-hmm. If someone is passionate about something and they bring it up and you don't counter that with something that you know is going to inf- inflame them, it's a very effective way to start the conversation. Yeah, either to kind of, like you said, use the right language, disarm them emotionally, acknowledge their uh, point of view, acknowledge mm-hmm. their position, do it in a very genuine and authentic way, and then kind of uh, present what your position is. It's tremendously effective. Totally. So a couple questions on another book that you wrote. It's called Bad Choices, How Algorithms Can Help You Think Smarter and Live Happier. So you wrote this book to kind of apply algorithms to everyday life and help people make better decisions. So how do algorithms help us think smarter? The point of that book really was to look at the uh, literature for algorithms and data structures. So if you go to college and you study computer science, one of the classes that you'll take is data structures and algorithms. So I looked at that material and I thought, wow, there's a lot of a lot of connections between what is taught to um, first-year computer science students and things that we do in everyday life. So for instance, one thing that I do is I I wash my clothes at the uh, washing machine and then I put them in the dryer and then I take them out and then I have to sort my clothes. Mm -hmm. I realize that there is a connection between the way I sort my socks, for instance, or my other clothing, items of clothing with these other concepts that we have come up with in uh, computer science. So what I tried to do in that book was to uh, highlight all of these connections to say, well, these concepts in computer science have these potential analogies in everyday life. And it was a lot of fun creating those connections and kind of thinking through them and and realizing that a lot of the things that we do have actually, you know, have analogs in that abstract world as well. 
And I don't know enough about psychology or cognitive psychology to know which came first. You know, probably the everyday life patterns that we have came first, and those influenced how we came up with those abstract concepts. But that was the uh, that was the the whole goal of it is to just kind of show what those connections are, and the ultimate goal of the book really is for anyone to pick it up and to read it, and then by the end to realize that, well, there are more efficient and less efficient ways of doing things in everyday life, mm-hmm. and uh, not only does that help me be a more efficient person, potentially, but also it helps me understand all these concepts that I think are interesting in computer science. Yeah. Um, and it's 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 an analogy-focused, analogy-first approach to teaching. So um, we don't have much time left, but are there any actionable items from this Bad Choices book in terms of algorithmic thinking that you can give to my listeners? So any key concepts, of something actionable that they can do in terms of algorithmic thinking? Well, the book is fundamentally about efficiency. And um, this might not be straight from the book, but uh, what makes me efficient really is realizing that time is short. So I have to get going. If I have an idea, implement it right away, get moving on it, try it out and so on. But at the same time, realizing that there is plenty of time. So that's the kind of the polar opposite. So if I do something that doesn't quite work out, that makes me less efficient, you know, I can always go on and do something else. So living in between those polar opposites and kind of uh, the friction that they create is, I think, a, a healthy way to kind of go about being uh, productive in life. Very cool. So this kind of ducktails into my next question. Um, we are the Young and Profiting Podcast. So what is your secret to profiting in life? I would say be genuine, be authentic. Don't worry too much about fitting in. The stuff we've talked about so far is all, some of it is stuff that I hadn't planned for. I hadn't even thought it would even happen when when I was in school or when I was in college. And uh, the only reason I could make it happen is because I didn't worry too much about fitting in or being part of whatever group or, uh, you know, that there might be in uh, around me. So just, yeah, focus on doing things that you're passionate about. Be genuine and authentic throughout it all. And uh, realize that projects are stepping stones in a lot of cases. You know, if a particular project doesn't work out, maybe some form of it will work out in some other project in the future. That's great advice. And where can our listeners go to find more about you and everything that you do? I'm on Instagram. I also have a website, which is mylastname.com. And uh, my Instagram and Twitter and all the other, other links are, uh, are on that website. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ali. This was a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you, Hella. Thanks for listening to Young and Profiting Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a review or comment on your favorite platform. Follow Yap on Instagram at Young and Profiting and check us out at youngandprofiting.com. And now you can chat live with us every single day on Yap Society on Slack. Check out our show notes or youngandprofiting.com for the registration link. And if you're already active on Yap, share the wealth and invite your friends. You can find me on Instagram at Yap with Hala or LinkedIn. Just search for my name, Hala Taha. Big thanks to the Yap team as always. Stay blessed and I'll catch you next time. This is Hala signing off.